Good morning, church. Hope you all are doing well today. Uh, this week, I'm going to tell you the second half of the story. Last week, we covered uh, one of the most beautiful texts in the New Testament, if not all the scriptures, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. This text is, is a lot of people's favorite passage in all the scriptures, and, and there's good reason why. Uh, very few passages cover so much amazing gospel content in, in so short of an area. And, and not just that, but the way Paul explains this stuff. He just lays it out so beautifully, describing what we were before, uh, dead in our sins, walking in the way of the world, children under wrath. And, and then there's that hinge phrase right at the beginning of verse 4, but God. And from there, he swings into uh, all of the things that God has done for us, uh, that he made us alive in Christ, even when we are dead in our transgressions, that, that he has uh, brought us to himself, that he has saved us by grace through faith, and this is not by your own doing. It is a gift from him, all this amazing stuff. And it is a deeply loved text, and rightfully so. But Ephesians 2 doesn't end there. And the gospel that Ephesians proclaims doesn't end there. Yet, so often, we end there. We stop at verse 10, which is unfortunate. It's sort of like watching a really good movie and loving the first half of it so much that you just keep rewinding back to watch that section over and over again, and you never actually finish it. Or like climbing a mountain and, and getting about halfway up and turning around and taking in the view and it's so majestic and it's so lovely that you never bother going any further and seeing what the view would have been like had you reached the top. Today I want to invite you to finish that hike, uh, to go the rest of the way up the mountain with me and, and see the rest of what Ephesians has to offer and, and the rest of what the gospel has to offer so pick up with me in Ephesians 2, verse 11. You'll see Paul even starts it. His first phrase kind of shows that he's building this on the truths that he told us in the first 10 verses. He says this, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, a little context here. The world that Paul is writing into in this kind of worldview that he's describing, there are basically two major people groups. They're the Jewish people, that is, the descendants of Abraham, whom God had called long ago and set aside as his specific people, his covenant people that were going to be joined in this covenant relationship with him. And, and those people uh, had this special status because they, of this covenant. And they had the scriptures, and they had the prophets, and they had the temple and the law and all of those things that pulled them towards God. And then there was everyone else. That was the, the pagan people, the Gentiles, those who did not know the true God of the universe, those who did not have his law and who practiced uh, pagan idol worship and, and engaged in all of these uh, immoral practices that were far from God's intent for human beings. And the Ephesian church that Paul is writing to, they were part of the everyone else. They were part of the Gentiles. 
And, and you need to know that in this day and age, in the first century when he's writing, there was a deep divide between these two people groups, between Jews and Gentiles, a, a division that is well attested both in, in the scriptures and in historical documents from that time. And this division was so deep and the, the tension was so real that, that like good Jewish people would not even consider uh, walking into the home even of a Gentile person, sitting down and sharing a meal with someone who was not Jewish for fear that they might get like the Gentile cooties on them, for fear that they might um, bring uh, some of that Gentile uncleanness or impurity onto them. And this disdain went both ways. This anger went both ways. Now, some of this separation, some of this division was, was to be expected and was even appropriate. After all, if God has called the Jewish people, the people of Israel, to be his, and he's calling them to not engage in the practices of the Gentiles, to not engage in their sexual sin or in their idolatry or in child sacrifice or whatever else they're doing, then it's only natural that they are going to live two different kinds of lives and that there's going to be a, a normal, appropriate separation that's a result of that. But there was a deeper kind of division that began to develop from that as well, a, a division that kind of ran in their hearts. And this is a division that's it's really just kind of the, the natural tendency, the natural human tendency to divide people into categories um, of us and them. And it's natural within most people. This isn't just a Jew and Gentile problem. This is universal for us to categorize people and, and then be drawn to those that fit neatly within our own category, and, and to kind of often avoid those who don't fit in our category. And, and if that attitude and if that mindset is left unchecked, and if we continue to give in to, to the mindset of the flesh in those things, then what often happens is we don't just separate ourselves, but we begin to develop a distrust of, or a fear of, and sometimes even a hatred for people who are not like us. And we've seen that throughout history, all over the world, in all parts, in all places where human beings exist, this happens. There are some theologians that suggest that this is actually a result of the, the desire in every human being for uh, self-worth and for self-justification. That is that, that we all want to believe that we are good uh, that we are important, that we are righteous, whatever word you might want to use, significant. And, and we run about it in all these ways, trying to, to prove to ourselves and to others that we're good or valuable. But, but often there is something inside of us that tells us that that's not so. And there's an insecurity that I am not as good as I think I am or want to be. And, and one of the easiest ways to begin feeling better about ourselves is to start telling ourselves that people not like us are worse, that they're uh, immoral, that they're wicked, that they're stupid, and, and we are not like that. And you see how easy it is to already begin to feel better about ourselves. This was not what God had in mind when he called the Jewish people to be his special people. It's not how he designed for it to be, and it's not how he's going to leave it. In the middle of this first century, the, the time when Paul is writing, in the middle of this cultural and racial and religious tension, Paul says that God has done something amazing. Look at verse 13. But now, 
In Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You, you see kind of the parallel between verse 13 of this week's text and verse 4 from last week's? Last week's it was but God, and here in verse 13 it's but now. But now things are different. And, and the way Paul describes our condition before Jesus is, is really a, a really great metaphor, and, and it really goes to the, to the root of all human problems, and that is that we were made to live in relationship with God. We were made to know Him, to be near Him, to be uh, in fellowship with Him, in obedience to Him, and yet each and every one of us in our own heart has turned away from Him and has uh, separated ourselves so that now we are far from Him. And this is at, as I said, the root of issues in our heart and a lot of issues in society society and in culture, that we have gone far from God and we are in need of, if that's the fundamental problem, then the fundamental solution is that we would be brought back to him. Paul says that God has done this, that he has made a way by the blood of Jesus for us to be brought back near to God. But that's not where the story ends. Paul continues, and here is that second half of the story, verse 14 for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. And this is, as I said, the part of the story that we often leave out. That Jesus' death and his resurrection took place not only to reconcile you to God, he did that, but also to reconcile you to other people, to bring you human beings together under God in relationship with God. If you were to go to Jerusalem at the time when Paul was writing these words, and you went towards the temple, you would see that the temple sat up on this hill there on the, at the edge of Jerusalem. They called the Temple Mount. And right there at the top, at the center, was the temple itself. And then if you were to go out from the temple, there were these series of courts that kind of came out in concentric circles-ish. Um, right outside the temple walls, the first court you would have would be the court of priests. And this is where those in the priestly line from the tribe of Levi were allowed to come and they would do their work there, offering sacrifices, burning incense. All the work of the priests took place there in that courtyard. And then if you were to go a few steps down and a little bit further out from that, you would come to the court of the Jews. And this is where all the Jewish men were allowed to come and congregate and worship and pray there at the temple. And then if you went a few steps down and a little further out from that, you would come to the court of women. This is where the Jewish women would come together to worship and pray there at the temple. And then if you went many steps down and way further out, you would come to this wall that sat all the way around that. And that wall was meant to divide all the other courts off from what was called the court of the Gentiles. This is a place where those who were not Jewish, but who believed in the God of the Jews, who believed in the one true God of Israel and wanted to worship him, they could come to the temple, but they could go no further than this wall. 
And all the way around the wall, there were these signs that were kind of etched into the stone there. And, and Josephus actually tells us about these signs. He's a, he's a first century Jewish historian, and he writes about these signs. But then uh, around 1872, I believe, we actually found one of these. Archaeologists were digging up, and they discovered one of these signs. We have a picture of it for you to kind of see there on the screen. Uh, the words there are written in Greek, but here's the translation of what's written on that sign says, let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. That is, you cross this line and we're going to kill you and you'll only have yourself to blame for it. It was this stark, visible, concrete reminder to every Gentile that you might you might want to worship this God. You might want to have a part, but you have no real part in this God, and you certainly have no part in us. And I don't know this for sure, but I got to wonder if Paul has that image, that wall wrapped around the temple courts in his mind when he says these words that Christ in his flesh has tore down the dividing wall of hostility, that he is put the hostility to death because what he has done, Paul says, is he's taken two people groups who could not be further apart, who could not have more tension or division, who could not be more different, and he has taken those two groups and he hasn't just made them equal before God. He, he hasn't just made it possible for there to be a, a, a kind and understanding dialogue between them. No, Paul says that he has made the two one. He's taken two groups and made them one group now and brought both of them to God. And, and that this is why Jesus died, at least part of why Jesus died. Did you catch that phrase, so that, that came up twice in those verses, that Jesus died so that he might create one new man and so that he might reconcile both to God in one body. You see, Jesus died to save you, but it was never his intention to just save you. It was never his intention for you to simply have a personal relationship with God. Those are good, but he came for more than that. Let's read the next couple of verses, starting in verse 17. He came, that's Jesus, and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, this part is significant because what Paul makes clear here is, is that the point was not just unity. It was not just that the Gentiles could be a part of the people of Israel and they could all be Jewish or, or something like that. No, he says, Jesus came and he proclaimed peace to those who were far, that is you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jewish people who were nearer to God. They were nearer to the truth because they had the scriptures, because they had the temple, because they had the law. They were near, but Paul says they needed the gospel of peace just as much as you Gentiles. They needed Jesus' blood to bring them to God just as much as you Gentiles. So the point is not just unity that we can all get along. The point is that both now have access to the Father. Actually, if you'll remember that wall separating the court of the Gentiles from the others was not the only barrier there on the Temple Mount. There was another one inside the temple itself. 
That is the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from every other part of the world. The Holy of Holies was the place where the presence of God was said to dwell between the two cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant, and only the high priest was ever allowed to go there, and only once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. But the Bible tells us that when Jesus died on a cross, that that veil was torn in two as a sign that now we have full access to the Father. Jew or Gentile, all have equal access to the Father as one body through Jesus Christ. He'll then go into this series of metaphors, kind of describing our new identity in Christ. Here's, here's what he says in verse 19. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So he gives these uh, four different metaphors that, that now he says you Gentiles are citizens in Christ's kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Um, you are not just citizens of the kingdom, you are part of his household, part of his family now. And now you are being built into a building together with the Jewish people, but, but not just any building, you are being built into the temple. The dwelling place of God is his people, the church. And through these series of metaphors, we get a couple new understandings about our identity. The first is that our identity is derived uh, first and foremost from Jesus. Not from my race, not from my class, my social class, not from my political party or my nationality, but it is first from Jesus. I am a part of his kingdom his family, the temple of which he is the cornerstone, the dwelling place of him, of God. My identity comes from him. The, the second thing, actually, uh, there's a point where Paul makes this a little bit more clear in Galatians 3, 27 through 28 that I want to read to you. He says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, just to clarify, Paul's not saying in that moment that there's no more uh, diversity in us, that all the kind of distinctions between us are all gone. No, no, we, we still have those characteristics that are unique to us as our race or as our gender or as whatever that may be. That's part of the beauty of the church is that it is multifaceted. It's multi-ethnic and multi-generational and, and all of those things. That's what makes the church beautiful. But what he's saying is that that is not the primary marker for who we are now. I'm not first and foremost an American. I'm not first and foremost white man. I'm, I'm, I'm something different. I am in Christ. I am clothed in him. The, the second thing that the, we see, though, from the metaphors that Paul gives in Ephesians 2 is that my identity is corporate. That is that my identity is intertwined with yours. That I come together under Christ to be a part of a body, to be a part of a family or a building. He says those things and, and he makes it clear that that's, that's a reality. Whether we see it or not, he's not, he's not saying that it's a matter of if I will be unified with you. 
No, I am unified with you. I am one with you. He's not saying it's a matter of if we will be reconciled with people who are different than us or think different than us. No, if they are our brothers and sisters, we already are reconciled. We already are one with them in Christ. The question is simply, will we live that out? So it's been a weird year, huh? Uh, 2020 has been something completely unique and different. And, and primarily, there are these two things that have been at the forefront of our, all our minds. That is the coronavirus and uh, issues of race and reconciliation. And if, you, if you're on social media at all, if you're following the news at all, you see that people are constantly talking, specifically recently, about this issue of race. And there's a lot of people talking about what should be done and what needs to be done and what hasn't been done and all of those things. And, and one of the things I've seen on social media from a number of places is that there's been a fair amount of criticism that has been lobbed at the church uh, for not playing a big enough role in reconciliation, for ignoring some of the suffering, for not being involved enough that we've been passive in the face of some of this stuff. And, and, and the truth is, um, maybe not all of it, but I, some of that critique is fair. I, at least I can say for me, I believe some of that critique has been fair, and I think that's true for the church that we have not always stepped up in the way that we should. But, but one of the angles that I've seen this critique take from multiple people is that the church has a problem with just focusing on the gospel that in the middle of injustice or social woes, that there are churches like ours who, who want to say, but the important thing is we're just going gonna, gonna to proclaim the gospel, that what people really need is the gospel, that what society needs is the gospel. And so we're, we're going to put our focus on preaching the word, preaching the gospel. And, and there are a number of people saying that's part of the problem, that that's a, a way of sticking your head in the sand and ignoring the real issues that are taking place around you, that that's a way of being passive and, and avoiding stepping into to a role we're supposed to play. And I spent, honestly, a couple weeks just thinking that through. Is that true? Is our focus on, on the gospel and preaching the gospel and talking about that, is that part of the problem? Is that, is that a way of being passive or sticking our hand in, head in the sand? And, and the more I thought about it, the more I, I kind of came to this conclusion that it depends on what you mean by the gospel. If by the gospel what you mean is this story that's been reduced to just the plan of salvation, to my own decision to make Jesus my own personal Lord and Savior so that I can get to heaven one day after I die, and, and something that kind of focuses on my own uh, private discipleship, my, my own walk with the Lord, then yeah, yeah, I, I think that kind of preaching and that kind of thinking has contributed to our ability as a church sometimes to turn inward on ourselves, specifically inward on me, the individual, and to make it all about me. And that ignores not just larger social issues, but it ignores relational struggles within our own church. It ignores uh, the problems that many of my own brothers and sisters are happening but, or are experiencing. But the thing is, that's not the gospel that the Bible speaks of. 
The, the gospel as the Bible tells it is the story of a God who from the beginning, all the way back when he went and grabbed Abraham and said that his descendants would be his unique and special people, that all the way there in Genesis 12, God said that his intention was to bless the whole world through Abraham, which he would do by sending his son Jesus. It's the gospel of Ephesians 2 that says that Jesus came to reconcile us not just to God but also to man. The gospel that the Bible tells is a story that culminates in Revelation 7 with people from every ethnicity and tribe and tongue and people group coming together to worship before the throne of God. This is the gospel that is proclaimed in the Bible, and I would suggest to you that the problem in many of our churches, sometimes in me, is not a focus on the gospel, but that is we've not taken the whole gospel to heart or that we've not proclaimed the whole gospel, or whatever it is that that has kept us from living the full implications of that gospel. The problem, I believe, is that we have often settled for a truncated, individualized, self-focused gospel that is primarily concerned with how I get to heaven after I die and how I live a good life before I die. And Jesus we see in this scripture, did not come for just that. He did not come simply to redeem Drew. He came to redeem a people. He came to redeem a church, a body, a bride of which Drew gets to be a part. Some may listen to this and say, okay, fine, Drew. That, that kind of gospel helps you be nice to other Christians. That kind of gospel helps you care about reconciliation with other believers, but that doesn't help you care about suffering outside the church. That doesn't help you care about larger issues of injustice, but, but that misunderstands. No, at the center of this gospel story is a Savior who commanded that we would love all people as our neighbor, and then he gave us the model for that when he laid down his own life for his friends and for strangers and for his own enemies. So, of course, this gospel speaks to issues bigger than even just the church. So, there are a number of different implications for a gospel like this. And actually, much of what Ephesians is, especially from chapter 4 through 6, is working out the implications of a gospel like this. So, I won't get too into it. But it, it does seem like there are at least two implications that are somewhat timely for where we're at today in, in the world we're living in, in America in 2020. And so I just want to take a minute to hit on those two implications real briefly. The first is this, if we believe the whole gospel of Jesus, then we will show real concern for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26 says this, Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. See, if I'm not merely an individual on my own personal faith journey, but instead I'm part of a body, then that means that the joys and pains of that body's members become my joys and pains. The things that they're rejoicing over, I rejoice over. The things they're mourning, I mourn with. This is true on the small scale, with just our interpersonal relationships with the people in this church or, or in, in my life group. If someone is struggling in my life group, that matters to me. 
And, and their hurt and their struggle is something that I join in with, that I want to actively sympathize and empathize and, and, and engage with them in helping them through that. And this also works on the large scale. That is that when my brothers and sisters who may be from a different church or a different nation or who may look completely different from me, when my brothers or sisters speak of pain or suffering that they are experiencing, injustice that they feel they are experiencing, that my first instinct ought to be, before, before jumping to um, questioning whether that suffering is really legitimate, whether their feelings are real or genuine, that my, my first instinct ought to be to care. My first instinct ought to be to listen, that, that when, when they express that they are hurting or in suffering, that my, my first gut should not be to critique the way that they're expressing that suffering or expressing the frustration they're feeling, but that instead I would show an active concern for them because, uh, because people who are a part of the body that I am a member of, they're hurting. And so it makes sense that I would want to come alongside them. It makes sense that I would want to empathize them. It, it makes sense that I would be active in engaging with them and trying to help them in the middle of their hurts, that we mourn with those who mourn and we rejoice with those who rejoice, as it says in the book of Romans. Second implication is this, that if we believe the whole gospel of Jesus, it means we will walk in a spirit of humility and grace. Um, the temptation towards self-righteousness runs really deep in all of us. It is that desire to lift ourselves up and push ourselves up and make ourselves feel good, often by showing how good we are at keeping a list of rules, and then also by showing how much better we are than other people at doing it. In, in that way, it's kind of similar to that, that same thing inside of us that leads to racism. The very thing I'm trying to justify myself, and so I do that by pushing others down and lifting myself up. And, and for the longest time, the rules on self-righteousness, or, or you can call it legalism or whatever, um, revolved around one's ability to keep um, traditional values. One's ability to, to maintain kind of the, the traditional status quo when it came to things like sex, or, uh, or drinking, or the media, like the, the movies you watched, or the music you listened to, or smoking, and, and some of those things were legitimate, and some of those things were maybe kind of silly, but, but the heart underneath all of that when it comes to self-righteousness is trying to show that I am good at doing all of those things, better than other people, better than you at doing those things. And, and here's kind of my hunch. My hunch is that even though as a culture America has pushed aside a lot of the traditional values and the things that we used to cling to to make ourselves look good, that that spirit of self-righteousness still runs deep in us. And that people still live that way just as much as they did before. They've just changed the criteria. Now the way that you show that you are righteous is by holding to um, a right understanding about uh, issues of justice and issues of race and issues of, of culture. And, and those who have a wrong understanding or those who do things or say things that are insensitive and those people who, who contribute to or don't understand injustice, what, what we often see is that people come down on them with just as much harshness, with just as much judgmentalism as a fire and brimstone preacher from the 1950s. 
As a matter of fact, one of the ways that I can show that I really care, that I'm really loving, is by being extra angry at people who don't see things the right way. And we see that on social media all the time, coming from both directions, and it's this ability to try to lift myself forward as important, as a good person, as righteous, and, and I just want you to know that the gospel undercuts all of that. Because the gospel of, of Ephesians 2 says that all of us were far from God, and none of us were drawn near to him by holding to traditional moral values, and none of us were brought near to him by having the right perspective on social issues. We were brought near by the blood of Jesus alone. And so I don't have to try and justify myself. I don't have to try and make myself look like I get it and like I'm really caring. No, I'm justified by Jesus and his blood. And I also don't have to come down in anger on anybody who doesn't get it because I am a person. We are a people as a church who have received much grace from the Lord. And so we ought to be quick to extend that grace to everyone, but especially to those in the church. Ephesians 2 teaches us that not only have we been reconciled to God, but that we have been made one with one another, that we are reconciled as one body underneath him. And it is right and good, church, that we would remind ourselves to this, of this. It is true that I am one with you. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether we live like it or not, it's true. And so it would only make sense that we would live like it that we would live out the oneness that Christ has made possible through his death. One of the best ways that we remind ourselves of this is through this time that we call communion or the Lord's Supper, where we come together and we take these elements, the body of Christ, this reminder of the body of Christ that was broken, but also the body of Christ that we are a part of now. And we take that together in remembrance of him. So let's do that now. And then we remember the blood of Jesus that brought us near to God. Let's drink together. Let me pray. God, I thank you for taking those of us who were far and bringing us near to you. I pray that you would help us to live in that reality that we have been brought together by the blood of Jesus as one body to follow and worship you. Thank you for the grace that did that. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for saving us and letting us be near when we once were far. We ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen.